0: All right, Matt, welcome Uh, to episode six of the Performers Advantage podcast. And today, Matt, we're going to be talking about fasted training. And that is, do we need to eat before training? you love that, don't you? I do, I do. Eating or not eating? Anyway, Matt, before we get into um, fasted training and everything that goes around that. Yeah,
1: how are you? Yeah. I mean we gotta start with that. Like how you how you doing?
0: Yeah, good, thank you. Uh it was good to see you up here on the weekend. Yeah. Rotorua. yeah well, there was a big event on, wasn't it? Yes. There? So we had up in Rotorua, uh we had the Crankworks World Tour stopping off here, which was um pretty epic and pretty massive. Although I was down at the spirited women's all women's adventure race in Gisborne. Yeah, uh, why were you there though? i was helping oh yeah yeah it's yeah, okay. part of my my job that encompasses all things insurance sport
1: yeah well it's good to be at those kind of events just to kind of see what's going on and like there were thousands of women signed up in a women's only event weren't there
0: yeah it was it was great it was really cool to see i hadn't been in part um emma my wife she'd done it a couple times um and obviously she's highly competitive elite athlete but to see the huge scope because there's long course medium course short course and uh and the woman that did it were really like so i was manning the bridge jump which is essentially like a an old abandoned rail bridge over a river and about five seven meters high and the woman had to jump off there's a mystery mystery activity yeah everyone we got a two minute penalty if you didn't um and so they just turned up you know, as part, doing the orienteering thing, and like, oh, what's this? I was like, you got to jump off, you know. Yeah. Um, they uh, couldn't, like, skull a beer to get around it or anything? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, uh, but the weird woman, you know, 60, 70 years old, like, jumping off this hoary-ass bridge. Okay. Um, so and That's was, a New
1: Zealand thing, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, they would have never done it, you know, solo. Um, and, yeah, just, they were all getting amongst you. You should have seen some of the bikes that we had checked in. yeah you sent me a photo of one of those (laughs) Uh, some of these bikes probably wouldn't have been used uh i yeah i don't even i don't even know where these bikes came from one lady had like a full-on hardcore what is it what is it the the gambler the the scott downhill bike okay i was like whoa that's a pretty intense thing she's like yeah it's my brother's he let me borrow it it's a downhill bike (laughs) She's got a downhill bike for some a, brother. For yeah. an it wasn't ride. a friend, obviously. <laughs> a friend, friends don't do that to friends. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, well, okay, good luck with that. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, but then you you
1: uh you drove home overnight.
0: Yeah, no. So we came came back straight to straight back to catch up um to with you guys and watch the enduro, and yeah, what enduro was pretty World cool series. was to watch the enduro so enduro i'll let matt explain it but matt coaches a couple of the dudes and to to get a bit more of an insight into what was going on uh was was cool like the line choice and stuff it's yeah yeah it's, it's a massively you know at that level like we were watching it's oh, the world's best guys and uh for me it's so different it's so different because you can i don't know what the scope was you'll be able to go through the results a little bit for me but it was like 30 seconds, right? You can just make small, small mistakes and that mistake is there forever, you know, in that race run. Um, and now you just, it just really opened my eyes to like, if you can just minimize mistakes rather than trying to go fast. Like, yeah, kind of, I don't know what, uh, like how do you approach something like that? Because if you don't make any mistakes, you obviously your, your potential to go higher higher up the the leaderboard um but then you're not going as fast potentially so how do you juggle that because you so your guy (laughs) finished eighth
1: yeah yeah i had a rider in the top 10 that was super cool and it was it was really cool to be there for that um just to even though i wasn't like um you know giving him advice during the race or like uh feeding him drink bottles or anything uh, i was just like you know cool to be there to see like the hard work kind of paying off for a rider yeah you know um and uh you know it's really cool for like um you know so i'm there with you and you know some of my other riding friends and like we ride those same trails all the time yeah but not like not like that you know so not like like,
0: not at that level oh like we
1: feel like we're going fast right and like oh yeah that was sick (laughs) that was so good um and then you know you watch them race and it's like well you know that they're the best of the best and, uh, you know, they need to be fit and, but, um, and they need to take some calculated risks because they need to go really, really fast. Um, and you know, like you said, one mistake and that could cost you the win or something like that. Cause, um, the times are really tight. Um, it was only about 30 minutes of racing all up. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so, but they were out for eight hours. Yeah. So. so
0: what's the schedule? Like what, how does an enduro look?
1: Yeah. Like they do a number of stages and, um, like, so they're mostly downhill stages, yeah. um, gravity oriented with some, you know, difficult features and things like that. But it's not pure downhill racing because they need to get to like all these different stages. So they need to, con- they need to pedal there. So they were out for maybe, they started at like 8 a.m. and finished at about like 3 p.m. Yeah. Um, so they were out for a while. Um, and you know, that wears on you just being out there. They, they had a few, like, uh, shuttle transfers, but they're still out there all day, and they're racing for 30 minutes, and they need to climb up quite a few hills, so... Yeah, well, um, um,
0: like, they're, they're all out for around, what, four to five minutes? Yeah, I think
1: uh, the longest stage one, was, like,
0: nine minutes. Yeah, eight or nine, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, um, yeah. Yeah, it's hard racing, and, you know, you don't want to crash, because, I mean, they're going so fast, so...
0: What's the deal with, um, like... Getting aid and stuff. Is it just what you carry on you? Like, I saw some guys have drink bottles on them and stuff. Like, you wouldn't see yeah. that in downhill.
1: No, they don't really... Downhill's only three to five minutes, you know? They yep. don't really need to take anything. But with enduro, like, um, especially in Rotorua, like, there's spots to stop and, like, just fill up your water bottle. Yeah. So you really don't need to take much. Okay. Um, probably yep. weren't many mechanicals out there. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you smash a wheel or something... Um, you need to run the same equipment pretty much all day.
0: Okay, so you um, can't so. switch your wheel out?
1: Uh, there's a few things you can't switch, like your frame, your wheels, your fork. Um, I think that's it. But, like, if you cut a tire, you can put a new tire on or something. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was quite fun. Quite fun to be there. I love it. Love watching racing. But we we also started a fantasy enduro team, our <laughs> fantasy enduro. I haven't league. checked the scores. How did I go? Um, well, you're in second place in our league, so oh, you that's... you put together a pretty good team. Will. I did. I did. That's did I good. have
0: Ma- Marty Mays? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. We'll anyway. have to
1: go back and look at. It. But you know, there's another round this weekend, so we'll be able to talk about it
0: all again. So. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty tough. They they're in Tasmania now, right? Yeah, they go
1: from New Zealand to Tasmania, and um, they got two days to practice. Yeah. I can't remember, actually. This one might be a two-day race with two days of practice. But uh, no, I think it's two days practice, one-day race.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's so. tough. It's a tough life. Like, I just had um, two, two of the boys. Uh, they raced in Argentina last weekend, and that was a big race. It was close to three hours, off-road triathlon, Xterra. Um, first race of the Pan American Champs. Oh, cool. And... Um, this weekend, straight straight away they're in Chile. You know? Okay. And then there's a potential we'll see how it goes. Um if they're feeling good, they'll be coming straight back into Extera Rotorua. Um so that will be three races and three weeks in three countries, two continents. Okay, and a lot of time zones uh in between yeah, South America yeah. and New Zealand. So the thing with the Extera Rotorua, although it's a hometown race, um for, for the boys it's, it's not part of the Pan-American Series, and there's no overall World Series. So, like, there's prize money, but otherwise for the points, it's not that important, yeah. um, which is kind of a shame, you know, um, for it. But the, all the guys that aren't doing the Pan-American Series, doing the Asia-Pacific Series, they're over in Taiwan at the moment racing this weekend. Um, okay. So it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty major Um, yeah sort of tour that they're going to be going on like we started so we just started the boys finished second and fourth great good on them um got some good points bit of money (laughs) yeah and uh but what are we we're just end of march and world champs is like end of october so it's it's on we're on now um yeah and that becomes yeah a very harsh juggling act of training Fatigue maintenance, injury, sickness, and travel. Yeah. <laughs> and racing. Um, as you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is pretty much why they do it, though. So, like, all of the off-season training is kind of geared towards this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Um. So. Yeah, it rolls around quick, and then we'll we'll be done with it. But. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that was pretty much. Pretty much, us, say eh, for the weekend. Yeah, so
1: good weekend. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good weekend for for our athletes. Enjoyable weekend for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we got a question. Um, a, quite a specific question around faster training, which you had mentioned. Um, you got a, a very nice compliment on not only your uh, your first triathlon story, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but your um that your um suggestions around cross-country mountain bike training on the last episode so what uh what this listener tim had had asked was around faster training and now one of the the uh, founders our phd supervisor professor steve stannard um did a study on this um a very popular one if you go on google scholar and search faster training it's the first one that pops up and I sort of want to delve into that and why faster training is a good idea um, to incorporate into your your training regime. Um, yeah, yeah. So because I looked that up um, and you would possibly know a bit about it, Matt, you could probably just fire the questions at me.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, faster training is pretty interesting to me because before I moved to New Zealand, that was not anything that ever crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, I would, you know, I was a kind of like, I don't know where I got this information from, but I pretty much would have Gatorade on every ride. And I think, you know, maybe a lot of people would do that. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but first, like, it's not good for your teeth first off, <laughs> like it costs money. Um, but also like, um, you don't actually need that kind of fuel on every ride that yeah. you do. So like you were actually the first one to kind of get me into the fasted training and like, it's become a big part of what, um, what I do with my athletes, and the results have, like, the results speak for themselves, like, um, and they can feel a difference, see a difference, and, um, yeah, so, um, when, when did you
0: get, kind of, get into the faster training? Um, interesting enough, it was, it was something I sort of always did, I guess, because as I started getting into endurance sport... I was um, doing my biochemistry degree. Um, So, a lot of that very specific biochemical, like um, metabolic pathway stuff, uh, I understood quite in depth. So, I thought, oh, well, I mean, if you're trying to enhance this pathway, the best way to do that is to limit sort of uh, the carbohydrate status. Um, So, yeah, it was something, I don't know, I just. I just incorporated, um, and then it worked it worked well, I was able to last longer, but then I was still like very reliant on carbohydrate during the Mm. the ride. Um, it wasn't until I met Steve to start my postgrad in sporting exercise that I'd started to understand more of the during the riding, when to limit carbohydrate and then from there it would lead into like my PhD, which is the the total elimination of carbs. Almost yeah um nearly yeah so what what steve did so where the research really uh put where what you understood before you came to new zealand to drink gatorade um was there was research that showed if you took carbohydrate or you had like really full glycogen stores you would exercise um you'd elicit like your best possible performance and you'd be able to run ride swim faster Right. Well, that's what you want, isn't it? Exactly. That's what you want. Um. Then there was sort of uh, there a bunch of people who didn't really like a lot of this carbohydrate stuff, and where who who was funding it. Um. You know, your Gatorades, your your Powerades, Coca Colas, Kellogg's, that kind of thing. Not that the research was like wrong. It's just that there's such a large mass of it all pointing towards like the same thing of like full glycogen stores, um, maximal carbohydrate absorption rates, all of that kind of stuff. So that led into the recommendations that flowed down everywhere and then obviously these companies push those recommendations on people like like you and like the mass market of like you need this to and it's not wrong like it's not wrong that you if you have carbs you can do like endurance sports better.
1: Yeah, you can exercise at a high intensity for longer
0: if you have this Then Than if you didn't, if you just had water. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, then, so what the other sort of side of that uh, argument was, actually, what if we trained in a suboptimal state? Would that not elicit a more, um, like, a, a larger adaptation? Um, because we're now no longer in the best, you know, we now don't have a full glycogen store and we don't have um, consistent, like, um, topping up of our blood sugars, would that not, um, you know, help us to somehow, in some way, biochemically, physiologically, like, adapt to a more harsh condition?
1: Okay. So so what? how about we start it off with some definitions then? Okay. So some suboptimal training. And then let, let's talk a little bit about what full what a full glycogen store kind of is. Okay. Right? And, and yeah.
0: So, so start with some definitions. Suboptimal um, is like a non-performance enhancing state. Let's say it's 40 degrees, sun's shining, uh, and you don't drink any water all day, and then you go for a run, and it's still 40 degrees, and the sun's shining. Like, no one's going <laughs> to... Like, you understand how hard that would be. Yeah. Right? So that's suboptimal, like, non-performance-enhancing condition. If we converse that with the performance-enhancing conditioning, it would be you staying in an air-conditioning room, drinking electrolytes, going out fully kitted with, like, a a hydration vest or something, and, and doing your whatever workout for the next hour like that. So obviously you'd perform better. You'd perform better. Yes, Mm -hmm. like if it was, um, uh, we'll just say a a one-hour run, like you're going to run faster for that one hour, definitely. But then at the end of the run, you come back into your room, and now the time, now you've done your training, now that's the real time for enhancement is recovery. Well, how much stress have you put on your body in both conditions? You know, so next time you head out, who's if you were the same athlete kind of thing, like who's going to be in the better position? Um, And that's where you want the, you don't want suboptimal recovery. You want optimal recovery. Um, So then you'd start with your hydration and your air conditioning room, hiding from the sun or whatever. Um, But it's argued that the person who trains subop in the suboptimal conditions is going to be the one who ends up with the best training response.
1: Yeah, cool. So I guess, like, if we actually, if we think about suboptimal conditions, there's, like, we could probably, like, put ourselves in a situation where, like, lots of different situations of suboptimal conditions, be it temperature, or be it um, the, the gear that we're using, or be it the fuel that we're taking in. Um, yeah, yeah, and lots it's, of you know,
0: at, um, if you're, uh, like, Kona, the Kona Hawaiian Ironman Championships, same place every year, it's always hot. It's always windy. So if you're training in the middle of winter inside, you're looking at, at a different kind of beast, yeah. um, that kind of thing. So that's suboptimal. So then if we look at glycogen stores, that is you can store carbohydrates. So the the Gatorade you drink, you, you know that gives you a boost, helps you get going. You can store some of that sugar that's in that in your muscles and a little bit in the liver um so that can then power you through your workout um and you can store depending on your muscle mass three to five hundred grams the general number they throw around is five hundred grams um so you can store that now if you're if you listen back on the i think it's episode two the low carb episode we did if you are not very um I guess metabolically flexible and not able to burn fat at a really high rate. You rely on sugar to get you through your exercise. And that's that glycogen. And like I said, you only have three to 500 grams. You start burning it. It's not coming back. Yeah. Um,
1: So on one hand, like 500 grams of carbohydrate, like you can do a lot of work with that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. On one
0: hand. Totally. Yep.
1: But like you say, on the other hand, like once it's gone, it's gone.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Um, and that's when like someone's, that's, uh, someone's going to, you know, tap into their gait rate so they can bring in some exogenous carbohydrate and kind of yep. get them through the workout.
0: Yeah. And, and so if you, if you're able, you can, we can only absorb carbohydrate at the maximal rate that's been shown is around 90 grams per hour. Okay. So not a huge amount. If you're, you know, you've, you've got. So then you're looking at, so most people are going to be around 60 grams. yeah. Um, so then you've got, you know, four to five hours to get your, to get back to that 500 yeah. grams kind of thing. So it's a real, um, and anyone who's very well epped at their nutritional strategies for endurance and ultra endurance events will know it's a real fourth or for triathlon, the fourth discipline, or it's a complete other discipline of your sport to ensure that, you're using carbohydrate at a rate that's gonna, you know, make sure you're going really fast. But they're not using it at a rate that's so high that you can't match it with what you can take in, or you right. start taking in not enough, and then you blow up, or you take in too much, and you blow out.
1: <laughs> right, which you don't want to happen in a race. I mean, you don't want to blow out. No. So, uh. so say we have a uh, 500 grams stored of yep. carbohydrate. um, And, like, say I go out and I do a hard run. Yep. So, like, it's going to vary based on the size of the person and how much work they're actually doing. But about how long can I run or ride, like, kind of hard for? Is is there, like, a a blanket kind of uh, guideline that you can toss out?
0: Oh, geez. Um, It would have to be around... I actually haven't seen one. Um you know, you'd you'd be looking at, you you wouldn't get through uh, a marathon, in your in your best condition, um, so but then you could easily get through a marathon distance, without taking on carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, would be would be looking around that two to three hours for the majority of people. Okay. Okay. Um, like a steady what you'd consider like a hard effort um would be maybe
1: like a tempo kind of thing
0: yeah 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 so if you i mean if you were going to run a marathon matt i think you could maybe go around four hours maybe uh Um, walking (laughs) (laughs) um so let's say yeah so then i reckon at that intensity you could probably last for, for two hours yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like so yeah. so you'd um same with like a like a the half Iron Man's ninety K's, um so that's pros do it in two hours. Most people do it in three hours to three and a half hours. So yeah, again if you're going at that intensity, you'd go you'd get through two to two and a half hours without taking anything on and not inhibiting your performance, but after that you'd start to really decline. I'd
1: just kind of I'd probably be done if I didn't take in anything. At that point. Yeah, Um, and
0: so that if going back to that low carb episode, that's when, you know, once you run out of carbs you've got to rely on fat. And if you don't have a large um, capacity to oxidize fat or use fat as an energy source, the gap at which you slow down is is large. So if you generally burn a lot of carbs, right, so you can cruise long, as long as you have full glycogen, you can keep using your internally stored carbs. And that'll keep you going. You won't look any different to the guy next to you or the girl next to you who can burn a lot of fat. It's once you both run out or you run out and they have fat, now you might have to exercise at 60%. Because the other 40% that made up the 100% was all carbs. And then the person next to you exercises at 80% fat, 20% carbs. So the theory is when you keep trucking along, um, after a few hours, if you haven't got your carbohydrate intakes sorted, the the, the person with the big f- high fat oxidation rates can can keep going. There's, yeah. there's going to be a there's less margin for error. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, um. So, with so th-
1: talking about suboptimal training, do you think do you see fasted training as being suboptimal? conditions
0: yeah i i mean it's it's not hugely suboptimal um like what so if i reference the paper what they showed they had girls and guys uh or i think about eight and seven eight females and um seven males went through and they had um they had the fasted group which is an overnight fasted group and they had a um they had a fed group so that was someone who had They had around 100, and they either had 1.6 grams or 160 grams. So 1.6 grams per kg for breakfast. Carbohydrate. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you're 70 kgs, what's that? That's like around 110 grams or something. So that's like your standard kind of carb breakfast. Right, they had that, and then they had like a bottle of of Powerade during the hour to hour and a half training session. For four weeks, they did this. Um, Four weeks every day? uh four times a week okay cool yep so two one hours to 90 minutes okay um i have to double check that but i'm pretty sure that was i was reading two papers on the same topic um and yeah so and the end result was um that the fasted group improved uh, vo2 max and peak power outputs so in this paper in steve's paper they didn't um do uh, a specific like performance test besides the vo2 max and peak power test the other paper i read um, did and they did not have any performance benefits off of a one hour time trial okay Um, okay yeah so so what they did they trained for four weeks one group one group had breakfast and one and one didn't yeah okay yeah and uh and so and and so on the surface, like improved VO two max, awesome, and um, and improved peak power, so so that's great. And then and then so that's just the performance based stuff. Biochemically, the fasted group stored more glycogen, so that was that was quite a big finding, quite an interesting finding. We talked, which is a good segue. Thanks, Matt. Talked about the importance of glycogen. So actually, by training in the suboptimal state, so potentially with, like, a, a greater rate of depletion, I'm guessing. Um, I'm not sure what their glycogen status was like before the training session. Um, either way, the, the stimulus was there to enhance the stored glycogen. Um, so so by training
1: somewhat, fasted, they were able yep. to kind of wake up the next day and have more glycogen within their muscle.
0: Yes. Yeah, okay. after the four weeks. Like yeah taking those two measurements the fasted and the fed so that's that suboptimal situation we're talking about you know these people for four weeks they were training in a state in which i guess um if you want to take it you know a brainless model the body um was able to interpret the signals given and say shit we're not getting any carbs yeah like for our training we're doing this every day every other day and we need more we need more glycogen if we're going to get through what we're, we're trying to. So there's some sort of adaptation that took place there. Yeah. Um, I always
1: like to do it that way. Say the body says this. Like the body <laughs> doesn't actually talk when it's like being like, oh, yeah, I'll store more carbohydrate. Like it's not doing that, right? But yeah. that's, it's a good, really good way to put it because that's what happened. The body, like something happened biochemically that made them store more carbohydrate.
0: Yeah yeah there's the the well the stimulus was there and then the adaptation um which is you know what what we're trying to do when we think about training plans and things yeah um and so, so then the two other so then they looked at a couple they took a muscle biopsy and it's how they got the glycogen content they also looked at a couple key markers of um fat oxidation um so like Things like lactate and, well, I think the rate of glycolysis um, didn't really differ, I think. But two that were significantly different were citrate synthase and 3-hydroxy um, acyl, no, 3-hydroxy-CoA dehydrogenase. Okay, you know just one. tell us what those do. <laughs> yeah. um, so. Now let so me just Google it real quick. Citrate sin- synthase sits uh, as the first step of the TCI, TCA or Krebs cycle. All right, so um, this is going to be pretty, this is probably pretty above some people listening. Well, I don't, yeah, so why don't you just give us the notes then? Um, the... I, well, because I like to, I'm a biochemist, you know. Okay, okay. Do so you so want to draw it then? Draw the molecules. Yeah, yeah, that's where, um, so that's the rate limiter, pretty much. That's what says we're, we're burning, now not necessarily fat, um, we're, we're doing oxidative phosphorylation. S- sorry, we, we, um, aerobic. Okay. It's aerobic. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our aerobic metabolism is enhanced. Okay. And the, um, okay. and, and that's, that's for a faster training. No, group. wait, wait. Um, that was not that different. Okay. okay between the two groups i was like oh yeah but then we put gender in as a as a covariate and it showed that men did adapt and women did not oh, okay mm. similar to what
1: you found in your kind yeah
0: of, uh, yeah research. so it really makes sense in terms of like how um yeah the stuff i found so then the the three hydroxy coa dehydrogenase now that is an indicator of um beta oxidation so the breakdown of fat right so that um that's a uh what would be called like it's a tetra protein with a a, all three like there's like three um groups of the of the fat breaking down all sit together so it's a way to interpret all of them um that activity was was increased in the men um so essentially, just using those two enzymes, we saw that fat was being broken down at a greater rate, and that and the adaptation for it was there. There was more of these um, these enzymes, and then for the burning of the fat in the TCA cycle, the aerobic metabolism, that was also increased in men. Yeah. So when you just looked at them, like this other paper that I um, that I looked at, that showed no difference. They only looked at men. Um, uh, that had, yeah, they showed that the increase, but then when we looked at men and women, there's no difference. But then when we used men and women comparatively, there was. So okay. I sort of uh, went on a bit of a rant there.
1: Yeah, so something like a two way ANOVA or something
0: <laughs> kind of showed a significant difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was, I think, that's, that's quite interesting, and that was what I showed in my research in the um, low-carb, high-carb stuff, was that the? it's not so much... It's the metabolic flexibility that females don't appear to have. Um, yeah. So the so, window in which they can adapt is just smaller than what, what men can.
1: Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think females are already more efficient than men at using oxygen. Is that correct?
0: Oh, um,
1: yes. Yeah, so... They're already more efficient than men. Um, Then when men go on, seem to go on something like low-carbohydrate or train fasted or something, is it that they're kind of shifting more towards, you know, where females are already at? Is that kind of what's happening?
0: Um, No, no, it's just men have just a greater capacity to exist at, at either end of the spectrum. Um. Yeah, because just just because these um enzymes have adapted favorably to show an increase in in um, fat breakdown and oxidation, it doesn't like it didn't result in an RER difference respiratory exchange okay. ratio so the burning of fat versus um the burning of carbohydrate, and it didn't result in a performance difference. So same as what I showed in my study. So that. There are, the adaptations are there and there is a shift in the metabolism, although it appears like holistically across the whole body, it does not appear to be significant. Um, So the actual efficiency of it has not changed. Okay. It's just that under certain scenarios, the men will still be able to exercise at at their optimal rate, whereas the woman's scope to do that is a lot smaller. I see yeah okay does that makes make sense yeah yeah, 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 so, okay, uh, so that's that metabolic flexibility stuff I talked about in my research where you can just put a um a trained male um in essentially any s- scenario, and after a few weeks they'll be good to go, whereas a woman is um not so uh okay. yeah it's it has to be in a smaller window for them to to benefit okay yeah and that i mean the research in women is is definitely lacking um because of the menstrual cycle like for something you can do in four weeks with a man you know say test once every week for four weeks um if you want to get the same you know reference point in a female you'd have to do it once every four weeks for for um you know four cycles Yeah, yeah,
1: it does get a little, like, uh, well, where we studied at Massey University, um, there's actually quite a lot of uh, research going on about, you know, exercise performance in only females around the menstrual cycle, which is quite cool, but um, I think, yeah, overall in the research of, like, sports science, um, typically, you know, groups of men tend to be used, and I've been asked that before, like, why... Why, uh, for your new study, are are you only having men or something yeah. like that? It's not like, it's not because of any reason except kind of, what you said, um. And uh, yeah, I, I think uh, also like when you're publishing a paper, like typically they'll just um want the groups to be, like a homogenous group. So. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's um, also
0: like for us is we we like to test on elite athletes because that sort of shows the optimal rate at which something can be done um, and to find elite fe- endurance females is a, is a lot harder than it is to find um, and not necessarily competing elite males but men who are training at with a VO2 max of above 70 uh, in, in our field you know is relatively easy to find
1: Yeah. It just becomes a number game at that numbers game at that point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So back to the FASTA training, like, okay, so we have this body of research and it's been a pretty, you know, well-researched, uh, area, um, about FASTA training. Now, how can I apply that information as a coach?
0: Um, well, the key takeaway now, we use faster training there as, as an example of where the, you know, the actual adaptation happened. It, it did, due to a suboptimal situation that was no breakfast and no carbs during training. Now, if you're going to elicit that, you just need to think about what adaptation am I trying to induce here? Like fitness, okay, muscular fitness... Potentially, like strength, leg strength, um, and running definitely, that's what you're trying to achieve. So, overloading. So, that's doing now. If we think about something like an ultra marathon, you know, you've got to run for 10 to 20 hours. So, you can't do that every single day or every other day or even once a week, probably. Uh, but you can train potentially like four hours, uh, like a week of training. Let's say you do one hour every single day, Monday to Friday, then Saturday you can do a four hour run and then on Sunday do another four-hour run so that four hour run on Sunday Matt, I'm a, I'm only gonna have to ask you you know how how well are you going to be able to run that
1: uh, me personally I would skip it
0: yeah <laughs> yeah um, because of the you know because of the over fatigue state uh, your legs are in if you're able to that's suboptimal and that's um a sort of like a that's a sport specific one running endurance running yep. um and then yeah we could look at hydration status we could look at heat uh if you go into a hot race or maybe even even in cold races if you you know need to um adapt to the way you store fluids or or cool yourself um how would you uh, would you describe it differently or what would your recommendations be? Like, how do you incorporate it for your guys? Like, so that's yeah, the you training. Had, yeah, like the boys are out for eight hours. Yeah, I mean that's that's
1: pretty hard to train for an eight-hour event. You you kind of need to build up the volume to get to that point. But you know, if we're looking to just um, add stress aerobically without put, like doing a ten-hour training day. You know, one of the, that's one of the things that we can do is, you know, stack days of training because you go into each successive day with uh, le- lesser glycogen stores to then complete that training. And then we can also do fasted training because you're kind of going into it and not bringing in extra glucose.
0: Yeah. Um, do you do it for the skills component as well? Obviously, like, the final stage of the day is maybe at hour seven, or six to eight or something so now you've got to try and do a downhill after like seven hours of exercise like do you do you have the guys sprint up a hill and try and descend as fast as possible
1: yeah no i uh i think that's that's a tricky kind of thing uh like getting so like like if you're going down a hill um yes you need to do it tired in a race yeah. but if you're doing that all the time in training, um, you're just kind of increasing the likelihood of, like, crashing and getting hurt. Yeah. Um, Ah, yeah. Yeah, so that's how I look at that because I think that can be quite dangerous. Um, And, you know, sometimes we'll do, like, sub-lactate threshold kind of efforts into a descent or maybe a short sprint, um, like you'd start a normal stage. But, um, you know, if we're kind of going into something sloppy and fatigued, I think you're just asking for trouble, really.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah yeah and then so what uh also needs to be in uh taken into account is you should when you are trying to like say your your fastest if you're a downhiller that's really skills component like there's not a lot of fatigue going into it and for runners um who are trying to you know say that they're training for their marathon and they want to do their key marathon session or their key 5k speed session it's not advantageous to be doing that at a subpar situation
1: no you need to you need to be ready like if you're in the build-up to the season and uh you know you're throwing in like lots of fasted endurance rides like an endurance pace and then um you know you kind of can stack hard sessions um around those knowing that you're coming into it with lower glycogen stores i think that's okay but when you're getting into like the meat of the season um you don't want to really be messing around with those hard sessions because you want to get the most out of them yeah um and uh be able to
0: recover really really quickly yeah because uh, there's a lot that goes so or although you have the potential to um adapt more i think a lot of with um a sub sub situation I think a lot of that adaptation is occurring around the, uh, that aerobic steady state position. Um, when we're when we're looking to, you know, if you're going in, if you're a, a time trialist or like you're doing Ironman or half Ironman triathlon or something, you need to sustain a power or you're just doing anything really that running and you need to sustain a certain level. If you're training suboptimally the whole time, that you're never actually able to train at that level, then it becomes a completely different thing when you think, oh, I'm going to get to the race day, I'm going to ride at 10, 20 watts more, I'm going to run 10 seconds per kilometre faster. If you haven't even trained there, it, um, it, it becomes sort of, yeah, there's no, that becomes more of a biochemical um, neuromuscular kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, you end up just kind of, limiting yourself in training which isn't what
0: you want to do like yeah. all the time you want for to those add key stress. sessions but then everything else like nothing yeah then it's you know you should just be along those key sessions two or three a week depends on your sport you're just doing supportive training don't need any food for that
1: yeah yeah so so how would you incorporate fasted training um say we're uh doing maybe we're doing a marathon how would
0: you incorporate fasted training into that um, so pretty much like in the once we're for a majority of running races, half marathons and up, I wanna allow ten to twelve weeks of build up. Um, and you've really got the window of actual like really specific training would be week eight to three. Like that five week block. So from, th- you know, three weeks out to eight weeks out, that's where the real meat of like your hardest sessions are going to be. So within that, it's pretty much just eat what you can to, to get the training done. You know, training is far more important. Getting your training done, doing it really fast. You know, the fast session's fast, easy session's easy, um, but then still, you know, making sure you're recovering from your hard sessions because some of them, if you're doing two to three hour running session. That can be 3,000 to 4,000 calories. Um, and you're not going to eat that on top of your, your diet already.
1: That <laughs> gets pretty hard. <laughs> it
0: does. So then the next day, if you're trying to not eat and go for your general sort of 40-hour hour run, 40-minute-to-hour hour run the next morning and you haven't eaten anything, you could be at a huge calorie deficit by the end of that run. And then you get in and you're not that hungry. And So the the real issue comes with, and I'm going to write a blog on, Monday's not a new week. Um, People do these massive training sessions on a Sunday, you know, and especially for Ironman, the weekend's a big training. Then they'll do, you know, maybe an easy something on Monday morning, potentially fasted, uh, just because of the nature of how early it is. And they have to just have their normal, you know, Monday through Friday breakfast, and they're just in this huge deficit um, that... Is not eliciting, that you know, a good adaptation. Like I yeah. said, you may want to train suboptimally, but you want to recover optimally. Um, sorry. So going back to the original question, uh, yeah. So leading up to that sort of twelve weeks, ten weeks is just train without food, definitely. Um, run pretty much as long as you can in your long runs without taking any carbs or anything. Just really trying to maximize your your metabolic flexibility your ability to burn fats um so that you're really aerobically fit going into it and um you've sort of stressed that whole system like i said before that synthase that's a promotion of the aerobic metabolism so you you're coming in a really good state then with you know then we've sort of got from 12 weeks to eight weeks we've got a block we'll start to put in some tempo training um and that's going to be pretty standard sort of stuff of like 10 20 minute tempo runs, build runs. Probably get some carbs in, have some breakfast, make sure you're kicking those off everything else. You know, probably fasted again, still trying to get some fitness there. But then from that 8 weeks to 3 weeks it's like eat as much as you know, eat what you can. It's not yeah. it's not about trying to get fit now, it's about trying to get fast and conditioned to the marathon. Yeah, right. Right. yeah cool yeah um so i you know the old saying do as do as i say not as i do oh uh yeah so yeah I, I know that saying so we had the podcast normally we do it on a wednesday morning and you say i had a big big run so my marathon roto marathons in um five weeks so my session i had four 3ks with three-minute recovery. And then two one and a half Ks. So 15 Ks of work um, at half marathon pace. Okay, and so, so I had quick. to get up at five. I wasn't that hungry. Uh-uh. Had a coffee, went out. And then I started getting a bit of a sore gut during my first couple of intervals. And I was smashing them. Like this is probably my my best ever session. I was holding three 20 minute Ks. So 10 minutes for the three Ks. Four of them on three minutes. Then two one and a halves, which I still held you know, just, you know, when you're in the zone and you just, yeah. So my you, stomach you was, you throw like...
1: out everything, you know, like yeah. everything, you know, yeah, goes just, out the it's window. all about okay. the times.
0: Um, yeah. and so I did, I had my gels. I took my, my, you know, fuel belt. I put bottles okay, at the end of each, cool. yeah. each, um, lap. No, I dropped them. So I was just fully just committed. Um, okay. so I had a bottle, you know, dropped a bottle at the foot anyway. And, uh, but then I had a crook gut, so I couldn't take my gels in. Um, like I just, but I, I was still, I was on for the session, did it, jogged back, ran, well ran back home, and then I was done. Done. I was in bed all day. I completely ruined my gut, I think, from having the coffee, which I have with cream, and um, doing that hard of a session, like it was almost two and a half hours, all up, because it was a forty minute run before the session. 5k run after, um, and, you know, about... No food. No food, okay. um, just some water, and, yeah, it was it was not pretty. Yeah, um, so we
1: missed the podcast yesterday, uh, which was a bit of a problem for my schedule. But um, how are you feeling today?
0: Yeah, a lot better. Like, I bounced back in the afternoon. Um, so I'm not sure if it felt a lot like food poisoning. I don't know if that accelerated it. But, anyway, that was... I got the session done but the recovery was suboptimal. Okay. To, so to say the least.
1: So, I mean, that's going to happen though. Like if you're an athlete, like um, you know, you're going to do something silly like you did and
0: uh well, it's going to happen? Like I yeah. I knew I should eat beforehand, but it was so early. I was like, "Uh, I can get away with it because I'm so adapted to not eating and not eating mm-hmm. carbs. I knew if I had my gels, I'd be completely fine." Um, cause it wasn't a massive, massive, you know, it wasn't like two, it wasn't like a 40 K session, um, or a full marathon. So, uh, so
1: for, as yeah. far as like recovery strategy, then like, you know, you maybe made a mistake, um, or did, you know, you had a crooked gut. So like you didn't recover optimally. What's your strategy then for yourself going forward? Cause you want to recover from that session.
0: Yeah. Um, well, because of our life style matthew and our jobs i was able to stay in bed all day um completely right off the day like all day i just stayed in bed and stayed on the couch uh and then ate some food and got back into my routine today yeah so i was meant to do like a follow-up yesterday with like an hour to 90 minutes um but now i'll just do half an hour um which is quite annoying uh you know, when you see yeah. what's written down and you want to do... Yeah. But yeah, I've got, to, I've got to pull it back. I've got another yeah. session on Saturday. You need um, to be smart. Yeah, you do. Like, And the key sessions was like Wednesday and Saturday. I knew that like, like a month out. Wednesday and Saturday are my days. Um, so really everything else uh, is just about... Like at this stage, like I'm five weeks out. Again, I said it's not really about the fitness now. It's about the conditioning. Um, so... So, yeah, it's really just a matter of, of just keeping the running ticking over. You can't completely drop everything out um, and reduce your mileage. Otherwise, you, you will lose fitness because you've mm-hmm. got to sustain that, especially when you're getting up, up you know, um, over 100Ks a week. So um, you can only lose so much training, so much running. But, uh, yeah. Still that's confident
1: I... going forward and... Uh... Well, you know, I'm just... super
0: confident because I smashed that session. Okay, good, good. You know, like if that yeah, had gone good. badly, and then I'd had to spend the day in bed and, you know, drop an hour off of today's running, it would have been a, a different story. Yeah, well, then you probably would have done something really silly, like another hard session today. No, I'm pretty good with. <laughs> part of this year, part of this year for me has been pushing that, um, that mental boundary. I've been too because I got overtrained so badly, um. And I was like written off for about a year and then it took me another year to come back. I've always been quite scared of hard training. If I'm feeling a bit tired, mm. like, Oh now I'm tight. Like running. I can do, I don't get injured touch wood. Um, and I just get tired so I can run and run and train as much as I want. Cause my body's not going to give in. Um, and so I sort of rely on that rather than doing the really hard stuff that needs to get done. Uh, and, so part of this year is like is, is trying to push that mental boundary of doing these sessions um which i would generally wake up and be like no i'm a bit tired i'll just run for two hours mm, yeah something i can do comfortably because i'm so aerobically fit um but then when it comes to the races i always just sort of got to the certain level and would do quite well but i didn't make those big jumps that like my numbers in training would indicate my fitness level mm. like my vo2 max is is really high but my ability to match that is, is not. Um, so yeah, like now nah, if I'm super tired, then there's no way I'm banging out hard sessions. I'm just like going back to the back to base. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah. What else?
1: What else? Like, um, one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about faster training is like stacking sessions within the day.
0: Oh, like um, like a training camp or something.
1: Yeah, something like that, like, um, or like, um, you know, you might do like a morning session, and then you might have an afternoon session, um, you know, which you'll typically you might mix in with something like two hard sessions a lot of times. Um, and the way I look at it is you're kind of, um, since it's in the same day, and you go about your day between the sessions, you're kind of going into the second one in a suboptimal state. Kind of like you said, yeah. and that's because you have a reduced glycogen store, um, and that's something that we kind of do a lot, you know, especially cause with mountain biking when we're adding in a lot of uh, strength training sessions in the gym. Uh, that you know, morning's a good time to do that, um, then we might do uh, intervals or something in the afternoon. Um, but then, yeah, training camps like something, something different again.
0: Yeah, it's because. You know, we need that point in which we're we're doing that massive overload. Um, and, yeah, doing a training camp is going to allow... It, it takes away all the noise, like your general everyday, like whatever you have on, um, and gives a concentrated effort at training really suboptimally, I guess, like for quite a large volume. Um, so it's inducing all of those pretty much mainly just like there's the the biomechanicals, like the muscular, like fibre reconditioning stuff, strength. And then there's the, the biochemical, like fitness based stuff. Um, so like my all my guys did and girls did training camps over the off season, big week long ones where the um the volume was just ridiculous you know, just, um, and so that was for a lot of reasons, but What's also, ridiculous, um, oh, like, so, you know, the, the Oakuni training camp, the one, the, the cyclists gone. so, I mean, they were up, I didn't, they were doing over 100k's a day riding with mountains, and then, so that was Sunday through Friday, and then I picked them up, and we ran 50k's in the, uh, Northern circuit. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this is someone who races for two hours. Yeah. Um, so, and then one of the, one of the other guys, he was up around 40 hours for the week. Okay. That's quite a Um, lot. This is triathlon. So it's kind of easy. Um, yeah, easier to do. Uh, but yeah, when, when these, these guys are, their normal training is around 20 hours. So, almost two times yeah just a big kind of
1: hit out ahead of the season
0: yeah massive and that we we did that um around new year's just before so quite a long way
1: ahead of actually the main goals
0: yeah so they just started their season you know so um what do we january february end of March, like three months yeah and they were about they were at least a month to six weeks into training um so fit you know really well ready it's not like we we we're coming off the off like the break no you don't rip- come
1: off the couch and do, do 40 hours that'd be a bit silly
0: yeah um yeah so that that fit and that's far away from from everything else yeah do you yeah. do you incorporate that
1: yeah i mean you it's kind of one of those things you kind of get it in when you can like consistent training is probably number one and sometimes especially if you're mountain biking if you do a massive block like that and throw in a lot of mountain biking it gets a bit difficult to recover Um, so you need to be a bit uh wary when you're throwing in massive things like that but i've done things like that myself where like uh just you know do one of the best things of training that i think you can do and that's go cycle touring yeah or um you know so you just do massive days there's pretty low intensity, um, but you do it every day and you're doing, you know, six or 10 hours a day, just kind of going on holiday or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and, you know, we yeah. did, we actually did the their performance testing before yeah, and after yeah, when, yeah. when I went on one of these and uh, I lost a couple kgs and my VO2 max went up and my power was up just yep. after doing like really easy riding for 10 days across Europe Um, yeah
0: and that should be noted those studies i was talking about before um uh they both used uh just aerobic training for their training loads you know so um and they got improvements in peak power and vo2 max yeah that that should be should be noted i mean that's something we're going to beat beat our drum um, continuously for people to slow down and still get fit but
1: yeah no um, one's really going to believe it um but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of thing works. And, um, you know, uh, it's kind of like when I'm talking to the, you know, the, my athletes um, ahead of a big race, I kind of talk about, like, kind of what the pros are doing, like the road cycle, uh, the road cyclists. Um, like, they'll, for example, do, like, a tour ahead of yep. something like the Olympics. So it's, yep. like, kind of massive, and it, maybe it's not a huge goal for them or something like that, but they're doing like a massive volume of training, kind of like the training camp that you talked about. And then they use that to kind of then taper into like a really big goal event. Yeah. Um, Stuff like that. So, you know, that's like, they come into each day in a suboptimal state because they're in a stage race, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. 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 Big time. Um, Yeah. You got to, if you can get that in and for, for most people, you know, that, that's going to be like a, some sort of long weekend where you can get a Friday or a, or a Monday off and um, just write up something crazy and try to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then making sure you sort of chill out into it and chill out after it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think uh, it's quite, it'd be quite cool to do a massive block of training and then come back and train like normal. But if you exceed what you're already doing normally and then you come back to what's normal anyway, like things can spiral out of control really quickly. Um, But uh, yeah, like uh, it's just one of those things, you, you know, like sometimes it's hard to pack it in, like where you can fit in something like that. So like the main kind of thing is like if you can only do it like eight months out from your main goal, that's the only chance you have to
0: do it. Well, it's better than kind of not doing it, really. All right. Sweet, man. Until next time. All right. All right. See you.